So welcome everyone to GMSACL podcast. I'm Mashima Ali, co-hosting this session with Dr. Chris Sharnar. Today's podcast focus is on the triple quadruple innovation, serendipity and persistence with our guest speaker, Dr. Rick Yost. Welcome, Chris and Dr. Yost. Over to you, Chris. So today we're pleased to host Dr. Richard Yost, Professor Emeritus at the University of Florida. Rick received his bachelor's degree in chemistry from the University of Arizona in 1974, after which time he moved to Michigan State University to study under Chris Enke as an NSF graduate fellow. It was during this time that Rick and Chris conceived of the idea of the triple quadrupole mass spectrometer, which is the topic of today's podcast. After completing his PhD in 1979, Rick accepted a faculty position at the University of Florida at Gainesville, where he has spent his whole career. Rick has received numerous awards, including the American Society for Mass Spectrometry's Distinguished Contribution Award for his work in development of the triple quadruple mass spectrometer. Other awards have included the 2019 CPSA Distinguished Analytical Scientist Award, the 2019 Florida Academy of Sciences Medal, and the 2021 Pittsburgh Analytical Chemistry Award. Furthermore, I'm sure that Rick will tell you one of his proudest accomplishments has been advising of over 100 PhD graduates in his career. In 2018, Rick was awarded the MSACL Award for Distinguished Contribution to Clinical Mass Spectrometry, and recently he contributed a paper to our special issue for instrumentation entitled The Triple Quadruple, Innovation, Serendipity, and Persistence. We are excited to have Rick here today to share his story with us. All right. Well, Chris, um, thank you so much for the invitation to um, contribute uh, to this podcast. It's always um fun to um, share the stories of, of how um, we got to where we are today in mass spectrometry um, broadly, including um, clinical analysis. So Rick, your mass spectrometry journey dates back over 40 years. Can you tell us a little bit about how you initially became involved with and interested in mass spec research? So, so my interest as an undergraduate at Arizona was really in um, electronics and instrumentation for analytical chemistry, how um, computers and electronics were going to change the way we, we made analytical chemistry measurements. Um, when I came to undergraduate school, most things involved um, turning a knob and, um, and watching the output come on a strip chart recorder, uh, motorized paper drive that would drive underneath a pen or, and it would drive draw your data onto a piece of paper. And I thought it was an awfully primitive way to take data, maybe better than reading a gauge and writing it in your lab notebook, but not much different. So um, much of that was inspired by um, my undergraduate advisors, Mike Burke, a chromatographer, and I did um, digital simulation of gas chromatography on, on my computer as my undergraduate research project, um, using a computer with a whopping big 32,000 bytes of memory. Um, and I... Um, also, I uh, worked very closely with Bonner Denton at Arizona, um, who was really into instrumentation electronics as well. So that was what I was interested. So my plan was to graduate in December and go off to industry, but those two guys convinced me I really had to go to graduate school. And it was awful late to apply. And so they told me where to apply, and I applied all places that had um, individual faculty members working in electronics and instrumentation. Ultimately picked to go to Michigan State. Um, and um, I thought that um, from what I could tell, Chris Enke at Michigan State had the best 
big picture perspective on how analytical chemistry would be um, revolutionized by electronics and computers. Uh, taught a very famous course on computers and, and instrumentation. And um, so I picked to go to Michigan State to work for Chris Anke. Um, when I got there, we talked about what I wanted to do. And my biggest concern was he was an electrochemist. And I felt electrochemistry was black magic. I'm not sure I've changed my opinion in the years since. And um, so he said, you don't have to do electrochemistry. I said, okay, I'll join your group. And um, that's what took us down the path to starting to think about, you know, where, you know, we could have the biggest impact in computerization and electronics. And um, as an undergrad, Bonner Denton, an instrumental analysis lecturer, had passed a quadrupole mass filter around, a brand new kind of mass spectrometer that was pretty much unknown. Um, and um, I thought it was fascinating because at that time, mass spectrometers were great big electromagnets, um, huge, hard to control by computer, um, didn't behave very well. And I thought this was the ideal mass spectrometer. It was a radio antenna, something I could understand. Um, so Chris and I talked about what we could do in computerization of such an instrument. Um, and that led in a drive home from my first scientific conference, the FACTS meeting in Indianapolis um, that year to um, uh, three o'clock in the morning. I was riding shotgun keeping Chris awake because he was um, driving the station wagon. That's kind of like a minivan, but shorter. Um, full of graduate students sleeping in the back. And I was told as the youngest graduate, I had to sit, sit in the front and keep Chris awake. So we were talking about science. And on that trip back, we decided that we would we'd build this um, tandem mass spectrometer, this tandem or triple quadrupole mass spectrometer. And um, so that's where that idea came about. So Rick, you, when you wrote this first proposal to the NSF, for uh, funding for the triple quad development. Um, what were some of the major criticisms that you received for that proposal? Well, you, you have to appreciate, of course, that, um, that Chris was not a mass spectrometrist and I was a first year grad student. Um, the, um, so when we came up with this idea, Chris turned to me and he said, it's a fantastic idea. You'll have to write the grant proposal. And as a bold young first year grad student, I thought that can't be too hard. How hard can it be to write a grant proposal? So I sat down, wrote a proposal to the National Science Foundation. If you actually pull up the proposal on NSF's archives, you'll find my name only appears in the budget one place as a as a you know graduate student assistant because grad students can't submit submit proposals to NSF. But um, and, and Chris certainly helped. But um, but put together this proposal, and um. We sent it to NSF, um, and um, and the reviews were pretty consistent. Uh, this will never work. These guys don't know what they're talking about. Um, you know, Professor Enke has no experience in mass spectrometry. Um, a couple of my favorites were um, experience shows you cannot computerize a, a tandem mass spectrometer, and of course, the whole goal we had was to computerize it. Um, and then one that said, you know, the quadrupolo is, is just a toy; it's not a real mass spectrometer. So needless to say, with those kinds of reviews, the proposal was not funded. Um, many years later, I found out too many of the reviewers were, um, and they were, you know, the big names in mass spectrometry, and you know, we obviously weren't able to convince them. Um, but being persistent, we sent a copy of the proposal to the Office of Naval Research. Um, 
who at that time was funding a lot of instrumentation development, keeping in mind that, you know, naval ships are very dependent upon instrumentation and stuff. And um, there was a mass spec on board every nuclear sub um, to monitor the atmosphere and they could see things they could do with this that they couldn't do with the instruments they were using. So um, they chose to fund us. And um, so we were on our way. Um, I'm not sure what I would have done had the funding not come through because I certainly couldn't have built one of these things, you know, with nickels and dimes. So we bought, you know, a couple thousand pounds of stainless steel, um, a whole bunch of electronics, and I started building a, a, a mass spectrometer. Realizing, of course, I'd, I'd never built a, I'd never used a mass spectrometer before. But maybe that was good because if I if I'd known much about mass spectrometry, I would have known it wouldn't have worked. Also. So your early development of the triple quad was highlighted by the collaboration with Jim Morrison at La Trobe University in Australia. One that seemingly came about from your luck with running into him at the meeting. Tell us more about your experience there and what you learned. I went um, in 1976 to ASMS by myself. I had gone to the dean and pointed out that my NSF fellowship provided some extra money for travel. And... Um, and he said, oh, well, we can't possibly cover your entire trip to San Diego for the mass spec meeting. And I said, well, if you cover my plane ticket and my registration, I'll cover my room and food. He said, sure. So I flew out to San Diego, stayed with my twin sister who lived in San Diego and, <laughs> and walked to the meeting. Um, didn't know anybody there, really. Um, small meeting, ASMS then would have been um, about four or 500 people instead of 5,000 or 6,000 today. Um, and, um, you know, we hadn't been funded or anything like yet that um, by the next ASMS conference, we'd been funded. And I really pushed, you know, Kosenki that he should come with me to ASMS. But I think he was getting awfully tired of everyone telling us how stupid we were. And I think that ultimately in that mode, he was kind of happier to let me be the stupid one than let him come and be stupid with me. But he agreed he would come to ASMS with me. So we went to ASMS. We talked to various people at the conference about our ideas, all of whom told us it wouldn't work. Um, They're consistent, at least. And, um, and then we um, ran into Jim Morrison. So Jim was from La Trobe University, Australia. Um, he had he knew Jim. Jim Chris knew Jim and Jim knew Chris because back when Chris was an assistant professor at Princeton, Jim Morrison came on sabbatical to Princeton, and they had run into each other and chatted about their mutual interest in electronics. So Chris said to me, I see Jim Morrison there. Let's describe to him what we want to do. So we went up to our hotel room. Um, Chris started to describe how we've been funded by the Navy to build this instrument, this trouble quad. And our concerns about, you know, could we successfully take ions at low kinetic energies and fragment them in such an instrument? And Jim Morrison looked at us and said, it will work. He was the first mass spectrometrist who thought it would, would work. And the reason why, he said, was because he had built a triple quadruple instrument, hadn't been published. We had no idea it had been built. Um, and um, what he wanted to do was to fragment ions between the two first and third quadrupoles in that center quad using photons, not to get a mass spectrum, but to get an optical spectrum. And so basically pick one ion of interest that you want to get this optical spectrum with Q1, pass it into Q2, um, hit it with uh, laser light and get an absorption spectrum. The problem is you can't absorb enough photons to get enough absorbance to measure. 
But if an ion absorbs a photon, it may fragment. And so if you set the third quadruple um, at that fragment mass and watch for ions coming out, you could then indirectly get the absorption spectrum of that mass-selected ion you started with by looking for increase in fragmentation. Um, the idea was you'd scan a, a tunable dye laser over the wavelength you wanted to over a period of about a day and get this optical spectrum. Um, and he said, you know, that what they found was that the ion signal from collisions, presumably collisions, that's what they guessed, in, with gas in that center quadrupole were way more abundant than with photons, even though they did their very best to get the best vacuum they possibly could in that center quadrupole. And Morrison said, you know, if you brought the pressure up, it, it would probably do extremely efficiently fragment ions. Um, <clears throat> and um, Chris said, you know, and Morrison said, you, one of you should come to Australia to try that experiment. And Chris said, unfortunately, we don't have any travel funds to fly Rick to Australia, so it won't work. But, you know, being persistent, I um, called the Navy and said, do you have any naval ships traveling to the South Pacific in the next several months that I could get on one of the naval ships and get to Australia or close to Australia? And the Navy program officer said, no, we'll pay for the plane ticket too. Uh, ticket is no problem. So um, we went to buy the plane ticket. It was equal to nine months of my student stipend. So in modern dollars, that would be what about twenty thousand um, know, dollars. Yeah, uh, international travel is much less expensive today than it was then. And I flew to Australia for the maximum length of time I could fly on the plane ticket, about forty-five days. Um, got there. Uh, Morrison had um, set me up you know, in the lab where the triple quad was um, and um, changed the locks on the door. That was a little odd. And, uh, you know, I would ask all the students and stuff what they were doing, but they weren't asking me what I was doing. And so after probably two days, um, I was in Morrison's office and he said, can I tell the students at least a little bit about what you're doing? And I said, what do you mean? He says, well, I know you're on this top secret project for the Navy. And I went like, really? <laughs> so there's nothing top secret. We, we can talk about whatever we want to talk about. There's nothing top secret. And he said, oh, I'm so relieved. I was so worried about that. So um, so I was, it was pretty amazing to interact with these grad students from you know, halfway around the world. Um, and um, you know, Morrison was very much uh, an innovator himself and um, and very much cared about young students. And um, he'd spent most of his career at CSIRO, the equivalent kind of, of NIST or NBS in the United States. But when they founded La Trobe University, they hired him to be head of chemistry. And he basically helped build the university. Um, and um, so it was a truly remarkable opportunity to spend time in his laboratory. Um, what else can I tell you about Morrison? So I guess, you know, since the title of the paper had to do with things like serendipity, you know, the serendipity of running into Morrison at this conference and the fact that, um, you know, he and Chris had met one another 20 years before. Um, and, you know, the fact that, you know, he had data that said this idea would work, even though, you know, it was not what he was doing with the instrument. And he had um, published it, so there's no way we would have known that anybody else had built a triple claw. I'll tell you one more story from that time that's kind of fun. When I when I got to Australia, and remember, I'm interested in computerizing this thing, um, I said to Morrison, um, if I want to scan quadrupole three, 
well, how would I do that? And he pointed to the electronics says, I guess I would turn that knob. I said, I can do that. I said, how fast? He said, we've never taken a mass spectrum on the instrument because that's not our interest. He said, uh, did a calculation in his head and he said, I guess turn it, take 20 minutes to get a mass spectrum up to mass 100. That's an interesting thing to think about compared to today. And um, he said, so I guess you have to turn the knob at about a quarter of a revolution per minute for 20 minutes. So my very first mass spectrum, I stood there in front of the instrument for 20 minutes, turning this knob at a quarter of a revolution per minute. And then I went down to the machine shop and got a little quarter RPM synchronous motor uh, ring stand, a piece of Tigon tubing, and a piece of zip cord, and a switch, and went up and, you know, wired up a motorized thing, shoved the Tigon tubing over the, the knob, um, put a lab stool there to hold the ring stand, flipped the switch, let it turn the knob for me for 20 minutes so I go get a cup of tea. Uh, I asked Morrison if I wanted to scan Q1. He said I'd turn that knob. So I just moved the ring stand over in front of the other knob and shoved the Tigon tubing over that to scan Q1. So that was the computerization of Morrison's instrument. Um, so, um, you know, what a, an amazing opportunity for me as a young graduate student to go um, have those experiences in Australia. So, Rick, the transition from a home-built instrument and something where you need Tigon tubing and a motor to turn a knob manually, um, that transition from home built to commercialization is a huge undertaking. Can you tell us a little bit more about your early collaboration with Finnegan Instruments and actually building the first commercial triple quad? Thank you. Um, interesting. So when <clears throat> when I was looking to buy pieces to build the first instrument, you know, I talked to various companies, including Finnegan, about what they could sell us. Um, and, um, you know, they're all pretty skeptical, but you know, willing to sell these pieces. Um, at Michigan State, as we were finishing up and, you know, I came back from Australia, finished building the instrument and computerized it, uh, took the data from my dissertation. Uh, and the Office of Naval Research informed us that we had to patent it, or if we didn't patent it, they would because they'd been burned before where they'd funded research. Somebody else had patented it, and then the Navy had no access to the research they'd funded. So at Michigan State, we went ahead and filed the patents. But, and um, patent was issued pretty quickly. So by the time I got to Florida as an assistant professor, um, <clears throat> you know, I was planning on building another triple quad, but, you know, it's much more fun to build the first one than the second one. And so um, I reached out to companies that potentially could build one for me. Um, three companies had licensed um, the patent. Um, Finnegan, we now think of as Thermo. Um, Cyx and um, Xtrel or Extranuclear, and um, visited each one of them, talked about what they could do. And um, and Mike Story, who was at a research at Finnegan, committed that they would um, build me such an instrument. I had told him how much money I had. Um, and the way I did that was I went back to NSF, wrote another grant proposal to the National Science Foundation. <clears throat> And I think that all the reviewers felt guilty after having dinged me the first time. So I got the funding um, and putting that together with my startup package from the university. I knew how much money I had and um, and um, Finnegan committed. They would sell me an instrument for that price. Um, so how what convinced them to do that was that they had done um, a tour of Europe just before PitCon that year. That would have been uh, 1980, I guess. And um, yeah. And they um, 
in the U.S., you know, the quadruple hadn't caught on. Uh, we're very traditional here in big sector instruments where, where the in interest of researchers not quadruples. But in Europe, there was a lot of interest. So they um, decided, um, Mike Story and Bob Finnegan and TZ Chu at Finnegan, that, that um, there was a worldwide market for maybe 10 triple quads and that they would commit to setting up the small business unit with so much money to start with to build and sell 10 triples. Um, so that on that basis, Mike Story said they'd build me one. So, um, so they put it together, um, called me when it was uh, together, and I flew out to um, Finnegan in San Jose, California to, to look at it. And um, I had some concerns about how they'd done a few things, and we talked about what they might change. And then Mike Story pulled me aside, and he said, actually, he said, Chevron um, has offered us, Chevron Oil has offered us full price for this instrument, which is twice what you're paying. Would you be willing to wait a few months and we'll build you another one and we could sell this one at full price, which would help the company? And I said, sure, if you make those changes, I can wait a couple of months. What I did not know was that there were two consultants to the company, um, Graham Cooks and Don Hunt, both of whom wanted ones as well. So in the, in the second batch, they built three of them, mine plus Graham's and Don's, put them on one truck and drove them across the country. And of course, I wasn't a consultant to the company at that point. I was this young guy down in Florida. So I got mine third, but the, the guy who did the installs felt that was totally unfair. So he came to my lab first and installed ours first. And I was amazed. Um, the instrument arrived on a truck on a Monday morning and the instrument was running Monday afternoon, despite the fact that the cables that ran from the electronics rack, three bays of electronics um, to the instrument was a bundle of cables, probably a foot or a foot and a half in diameter. Um, so pretty astonishing to get the instrument up that fast. But, you know, to me, that commercialization is so critical. Um, it's one thing to build an instrument of your own and be able to, you know, do cool things with it. But if you really want to have an impact, other people have to be able to do it too. And there aren't too many of us crazy enough in the world to build our own instruments. So I think the um, very rapid commercialization, you know, like a year after I graduated of triple quads was really, I think, incredibly important to, you know, the the widespread use of the technology. If it was still only crazy, you know, instrument nerds that want to build their own instruments, you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation today. You discussed the implementation of MSMS with chromatographic separation and the need to make sensible trade-offs. Many of today's listeners are clinicians. So can you talk to us about some of the trade-offs that were encountered by early clinicians hoping to replace conventional methods like immunoassay by adopting MS and MS-MS in the labs? Good question. So um, I think the, um, you know, what I, what I, when I give a lecture about analytical chemistry, I point out that these tandem analytical methods have um, become so important for trace analysis. When I was an undergrad, the way you did trace analysis was by doing a titration uh, using a burette or something like that. But um, but trying to take any one instrumental technique, chromatography, for instance, and mass spec, and making them be able to solve trace analysis problems in real mixtures of um, being able to <clears throat> identify or detect a small amount of something, the presence of a lot of other things, is quite a challenge for one technique to do it. But tandem analytical techniques, 
the earliest one that kind of comes to mind is GC mass spec, far more powerful. Um, and you know you can use a gas chromatograph to separate the components of your mixture, and then mass spectrometry to detect very efficiently and identify uh, the components, whether it's untargeted looking for lots of things or targeted quantitation looking for one or a few compounds. And I think that um, that concept, which was very novel at the time when I was a grad student of tandem analytical instruments or hyphenated instruments, some people called them, um, has, has really become um, kind of the, the bread and butter of trace analysis today. So if you think about it, tandem aspect, MSMS is such a tandem or hyphenated instrument. Um, most people today do LCMSMS. Some people still do GCMSMS. So now there's you know three stages of tandem analysis, and I would argue that um, you know sample cleanup, sample prep up in front is it can be another stage or a couple of stages if you do an extraction and then a back extraction or a set pack cartridge, whatever. Those aren't maybe as elegant because they're not online. You know they're not, they're you know offline from the instrument, but those are all examples of of these tandem methods. Oftentimes separation and detection. And um, and I think the sensible trade-offs idea came from this. When we first were doing the tandem aspect, um, Graham Cooks and others, you know, pointed out that with MSMS, you didn't need chromatography at all. You could analyze any sample, dirty sample directly as, you know, with MSMS. And while that could be true in practical applications, I think, again, you're much better off if you take advantages of the other things you know how to do, how to clean up samples, how to do chromatographic separation. So that's kind of came to this discussion about making sensible trade-offs. If you've got a particular problem, you're looking for, you know, this steroid in that sample, um, you know, you have a bunch of tools in your toolbox. You could do sample cleanup. You could do a lot of, you could probably clean it up enough. You could do it by HPLC by itself or GC. Or you could do it, clean up enough to do it by mass spec. MSMS would help you, wouldn't have to be as, as clean. You also have to think about what detection limits you want. But ultimately, I think thinking about, you know, your analysis, your sample type, uh, your um, detection limits you need, you know, making trade-offs between how much cleanup, how much chromatography, MS or MSMS, even today, you know, high resolution for the second stage of MS using a quadruple time of flight or a quadruple orbitrap instrument, um, all of which are, you know, kind of modified triple quads, right? Um, those trade-offs, <clears throat> I think, are, are what people should be thinking about. And um, one of the things I found out in clinical labs, you know, I visited um, Alan Rockwood at ARUP out in Salt Lake City on sabbatical a decade ago. And um, and he said, two minutes. He said, that's the longest time we're willing to, to spend for every analysis because you know, we've got a lot of samples to go through. And they worked hard to keep everything under two minutes. So there was an example of, you know, how do you make trade-offs to do that? And one of the trade-offs that they made in their lab routinely was they would use two-dimensional HPLC, which to an academician was something you only did when you were trying to analyze some sample incredibly exhaustively of, you know, cleaning it up on one chromatographic column and then, you know, cutting out pieces and putting another chromatographic column. And he said, no, no, he said, if I only have two minutes to do the chromatography per sample, I can get more separation by spending one minute on column A and one minute on column B than two minutes on any single column. I mean, so the plumbing complications of doing two-dimensional HPLC was worth it. That was a good trade-off. 
if you want to get your analysis time under two minutes. And you know, ultimately, I think with things like eye mobility and other things in the front, you know, we may get to the point where we do, you know, we use an LC basically as a sample introduction device and not really relying on it very much to do um, separation for us because of time, particularly in clinical analysis where, where the volume of samples means that the time per analysis is, is very important. So, Rick, this special issue that you contributed to is focused on other new technologies, uh, things like ionization sources, fragmentation methods, um, and other auxiliary techniques like you had mentioned ion mobility, for example. Uh, what do you see as some of the greatest challenges that are still facing the clinical mass spec field? And are there some technologies out there that you think will contribute to overcoming those challenges? Good question. I think um, it's always good to be thinking about the future and where we're going and, um, you know, something good for young people in particular to do who may be listening, um, you know, young people like me back when I was a grad student. Um, I would say that um, um, speed is an important one. Um, so alternatives to liquid chromatography are ways to do it even faster. You know, at first I thought that capital electrophoresis would would become the dominant technique for this kind of stuff um, when combined with mass spectrometry. But it's turned out that CE mass spec, partially because of, of small sample size and things like that, is never really caught on. Not that no one's doing it. It's just a, a very small fraction of the, of, the, of the number of people who do LCMS do CEMS. Maybe somebody that will still come to pass. Um, the, again, speed is probably not one of CE's fortes when interfaced with mass spec, at least. Um, the um, always interested in lowering the detection limits, obviously. But I, I guess if I were going to um, let, let me pick out a couple of things I think are important um, as we go to the future. So one would be um, I, I think eye mobility in various formats um, will continue to have growth. Um, you know that includes everything from classic drift tube linear ion uh, linear. Um, drift tube bi-mobility instruments, kind of like we used at airports, um, now widely available for mass spectrometers. I think that um, FAMES or differential mobility spectrometry also very promising. Um, I think we're still waiting for a commercialization of that instrument that um, does a good job of, of making those um, capabilities widely available. Um, and then, of course, there's a lot of people working with, um, you know, even expanding the capability of, of eye mobility with um, things like um, SLIM technology. Chris worked on some uh, when he was postdoc, um, cyclic eye mobility. But I think ultimately, keep in mind there's trade-offs, you know, for the same reason I don't want to use a, um, a 90 meter long capillary GC column or a meter long HPLC column. Yeah, they'll give me more separation, but at a tremendous price in time, and keep in mind that in general with separation techniques, if you want 10 times better separation, you need 100 times more time. And that's just prohibitive. Um, I think that, um, you know, a lot of these, these new eye mobility technologies are going to be most interesting as a way to make a compact, fast chromatographic separate, uh, eye mobility separation, not a, you know, supremely capable eye mobility separation that won't work on an LC timescale. Uh, so eye mobility is one. I think another thing I would like to see is uh, chromatographic 
technique that is amenable to large molecules and volatile thermonuclear molecules like LC is, but that has the ease of use of capillary GC. Uh, you know, capillary GC, anybody can do, you know, there's very few tricks involved. So another thing that I think would um, have a big impact on um, clinical analysis and more broadly um, analytical chemistry overall would be if we had a um, chromatographic technique that much like HPLC handles um, involatile thermonuclear big molecules well, unlike gas chromatography, which doesn't, but that was as easy to use as gas capillary gas chromatography. That would have a huge impact. Um, you know, capillary GC is routine. Anybody can do it. Um, no challenges. Really a few, but not many. Um, HPLC is much trickier. Involves cleanliness of solvents, um, additives. You know, somebody comes to you with an HPLC method, and they and they add a iron pairing reagent and all sorts of things like that. It causes you grief in LCM aspect. So I would really love to see uh, liquid phase separation technique that was as straightforward as capillary GC is, um, but for larger molecules. Uh, don't know what that's going to be, but you know. It's always nice to think about where the future could go. Um, I, and one of the things kind of that ties into the whole LCM aspect game, which is for most of clinical analysis, almost all clinical aspect uses, would be an ionization technique that works as well as electron ionization in GCM aspect, but that works for LCM aspect. Um, I like to say the electron ionization, or EI, as we call it, uh, for GCM aspect is universal. And democratic. What does that mean? Universal because every compound gets ionized. Um, doesn't matter, but if you can put it in the gas phase, EI will make an ion out of it. That's not true about electric spray. Um, and democratic because everybody gets a vote. Doesn't matter who else is coming off the end of the LLC column or the into the ion source. Um, they all get ionized um, pretty, you know, even-handedly. And electric spray fails both those. There's, you know. Many compounds that don't ionize well in electrospray. We've done a lot of work with steroids, some of which started when Chris was a student in my lab. And, um, you know, steroids generally don't have enough um, basicity to pick up a proton. Um, so they end up doing things like picking up sodiums and so on. But, um, you know, ionization is tricky there. And then the other biggest flaw of electrospray is the competition for ionization that, um, you know, some other compound may come by and steal all the, the ionization and your compound doesn't get ionized, it doesn't get ionized well. And so that leads to things like ion suppression and so on. And um, so I think that if we come up with an ionization technique that like EI was universal and democratic, but worked for liquid phase samples, that'd be a huge advance to the field. Uh, and again, I don't know what that would be. You know, when I was a young faculty member, we had things like thermospray come out and so on, and they were great techniques, but they didn't last very long. Um, efficient fragment desorption for um, desorbing molecules for, for imaging kind of things, um, big proteins and stuff. And those techniques, you know, while they were recognized with ASMS's earliest um, awards, are now gone. Nobody does those anymore. Um, so there's no reason to suspect the electric spray won't be replaced by something even better someday. And people will say, you're still doing electric spray? But, you know, I'm not sure what those things will be, but maybe somebody listening here will have just that idea and will take us there. Um, and the final thing I would say that I think 
you know, slightly different than what most clinical mass spec labs do, but I think the ability to localize where molecules are in samples is really important. And of course, we see this as a, as a theme at, at the MSACL conference. Um, so imaging mass spectrometry, and I think we've made tremendous progress there. And I, I think continuing to make, you know, innovations in that space where not only can we tell, you know, how much of a molecule or what molecules in a blood sample or something like that, we can tell what's in the tissue, not by simply grinding up the tissue, extracting and doing LCMSMS, but by looking directly in the tissue. And I think that, you know, there's an awful lot of places, uh, I mean, there's an awful lot of enthusiasm about doing this, you know, next to um, the surgical suite in order to direct surgery. But I think more broadly, you know, if I want to know what the biomarkers for thyroid disease are, you know, how much more powerful it could be if I could take excised thyroids from people who you know, had their thyroids removed and image the biomarkers in that and say, ah, I do see a localization of a particular biomarker, you know, in this part of the tissue and the nodule, a cancer nodule. And generally speaking, that's not so directly done if you have to dissect out the tissue, grind it up, and do LCMSMS. So I think there's an awful lot of potential um, in um, imaging mass spec, and maybe even for direct using the same techniques for analyzing samples on plates and stuff like that instead of in in tubes using a liquid flow. So I think there's an awful lot of potential there. So I think those are some of the you know innovations that I see coming. Um, in clinical mass spec that have the potential to help answer um, new questions. So if I were a young grad student or assistant professor right now, those would be some of the things I would be wanting to pursue. What would be your advice to the young scientist about innovation, serendipity, and persistence? Yeah, I guess that's an automatic question given the title of my, of my talk. I think, of my paper, I think, um, Innovation is so very important. I think that, um, you know, I tell young graduate students when they join the group that, you know, they should be innovating somewhere. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to conceive of a new instrument. It may mean that they're conceiving of some new way to um, to use an instrument to solve a particular kind of problem, um, new way of processing the data. But um, I say we don't give PhDs for analyzing samples. We give PhDs for being innovative. And... Um, I think one of the fascinating things to me about mass spec, when I came to Florida as a assistant professor, I thought, I'm an analytical chemist who happens to do mass spec. You know, I'll do other things. But mass spec has turned out to be such a phenomenally um, rapidly growing and rapidly changing, evolving field because of innovation that has been exciting. And so for 43 years, I've pretty much focused my most of my energies in mass spectrometry. And... Um, and I think at a time when many other the analytical techniques that dominated when I was a graduate student or an undergrad, you know, they're not that nobody does them anymore. They've they've become fairly routine. There's not an awful lot of advance in those fields. So um, and you can see that if you look at the journal analytical chemistry and you know count how many papers have to do with mass spec. When I was a grad student, it was you know a, a couple percent. And now, you know, a third or a half of all of the papers in analytical chemistry are in mass spectrometry. Um, so I think innovation is probably the obvious one of those. Um, but I do encourage young grad students to try things without telling their professor or their boss about it first. And if they work, you know, then go tell them. If they don't work, maybe don't tell them. Um, you know, famously, uh, one of my grad students uh, came to me one time and asked uh, to buy a new inkjet printer. And I said, Sure. 
you know, was 150 bucks, right? What I did not know was they were going to load um, multi matrices into the inkjet cartridges and use it to print um, multi matrix onto tissue samples for imaging instead of having to spray it on with an airbrush or whatever, or put down internal standards and so on. So once the experiment worked, they came and told me about it. But, um, you know, they were afraid, I think, that I'd say no. So it's it's worth, you know, being innovative as a as a young person, you know, and it, not everything will lead to a triple quad, you know, some things won't work at all, but, but I think that um, innovation is important. Serendipity, you know, you always have to just embrace the fact that you think you've got a clear path in mind, you know exactly how things are going to happen and be open to the fact that maybe that's not the best way and maybe something will happen that will divert you entirely. Certainly, you know, me ending up at Michigan State working for a professor who was willing to let this crazy dude graduate student go off and work in mass spectrometry, something that Chris had no experience in previously. And indeed, you know, Chris... By the time I left grad school, Chris had completely switched his group over to just mass spectrometry. He became the president of ASMS. Um, not bad job for an electrochemist. And um, but I think you know his love was electronics and instrumentation and computerization and mass spectrometry was a, a fertile field for that research. Um, so embrace serendipity and finally be persistent when everybody tells you you won't work. Maybe they're right. You listen to what they have to say. But I think. Um, being um persistent is important um and some things won't work and then keep pushing on to find the things that do work i will leave one other comment kind of related to all of that and i think that <clears throat> one of the challenges in any field is that the experts in the field are deep inside the forest you really know the area right around themselves very well um and they become experts there but sometimes it's hard for experts to see the big picture because you know, they're deeply embedded in the forest and they just see the things around themselves. And there are some really advantages to coming over on the mountaintop and looking down in the forest. And you won't have that level of expertise or detail, but oftentimes you can see things that the experts don't see. Um, and certainly, you know, the fact that you could take ions and frag them, fragment them at tens of electron volts in a triple quadro mass spectrometer was, was something that all the experts in the world knew couldn't possibly happen. And just I didn't know any better. So I did it. So I thank the, I take this opportunity to thank Dr. Rick Yost for participating and sharing insights into the development of analytical methods and instrument in clinical chemistry in a world of other application areas. I hope our listeners enjoyed this session. Keep listening for more on GMS ACL podcast. Thank you.